Hi, my name is Mary. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 4. In those days, the Philistines gathered for war against Israel. So Israel went out to engage the Philistines in war. Israel encamped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines readied themselves to fight Israel. When the battle was joined, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to camp, Israel's elders said, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the chest containing the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so it can go with us and save us from our enemy's power. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the chest containing the covenant of the Lord of the heavenly forces who sits enthroned on the winged heavenly creatures. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the chest containing God's covenant. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sarah. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Therefore, humble yourselves under God's power so that he may raise you up in the last day. Throw all your anxiety onto him because he cares for you. Be clear-headed. Keep alert. Your accuser, the devil, is on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Do so in the knowledge that your fellow believers are enduring the same suffering throughout the world. After you have suffered a little while, the Lord, I mean the God of all grace, the one who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, empower, strengthen, and establish you. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Diana. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 12, verses 32 through 34. The legal expert said to him, Well said, teacher. You have truthfully said that God is the one and there is no other besides him. And to love God with all of the heart, a full understanding, and all of one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered with wisdom, he said to him, You aren't far from God's kingdom. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you've gathered us together in your name. That by the power of your spirit, you're continuing to work in us and through us in ways that are hard to articulate. But we continue to come as we're gathered by you to be open, to be changed by you. So would you continue to do your work in us and through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is feeling better. Uh, he's not here today because he's actually preaching up at New Life North, but he will be back next week. I am one of three boys. I have three brothers, or four boys, sorry, I have three brothers. Uh, I have two older brothers that are nine and ten years older than I am. So when I was in elementary school, they were in high school, and that time happened to be the 1980s. 
80s. And so one of the things as a little kid looking out to my older brothers, I wanted nothing more than to be like them and to do what they did. So I spent quite a bit of time in the 80s uh, watching MTV when they still showed music videos and watching countless numbers of classic 80s movies. Uh, and developed actually a deep, deep love and appreciation for all things 80s, especially some of those iconic characters. You know, you think about Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Or Bruce Willis as John McClane in the greatest Christmas movie ever, Die Hard. And it, it's actually probably more of an Advent movie. They need a savior, they're waiting for him to come, that kind of thing. <laughs> then you've got Sylvester Stallone as both Rocky and Rambo. My personal favorite, Chevy Chase, as Clark Griswold and Erwin Fletch Fletcher, if you've ever seen Fletch. It's Oh, it's, there's so many good characters, but probably the most iconic of all, Harrison Ford, as both Han Solo and Indiana Jones, who was so many of our first Bible teacher, <laughs> <laughs> teaching us and showing us all the things that we needed to know about things we're going to talk about today. We're in the book of 1 Samuel in a third week in a series called Kingdom and Chaos, where we're looking at these texts. And really, when you think about some of the iconic characters in the Bible, a lot of them are found, particularly the Old Testament characters here in this book, Hannah. Samuel, Saul, David, Jonathan. We can introduce to all of these characters. And yet, as the more closely we read these stories, we see that all of those characters are actually minor characters in the plot. That as we look at every biblical narrative, what the narrators want us to see is that the main character of all of these is actually Yahweh himself. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of Jesus, who was working in and through these people's lives to bring about his kingdom and his will on earth. And we're going to see that even more clearly today as we turn into 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapters 4, 5, and 6. We won't read all of them. We'll just look at chunks of them kind of as we go through. But in these chapters, we've seen in the, the first few chapters of the book are really dominated by the character Samuel. We see Samuel's story being told. And then all all of a sudden, very abruptly, Samuel kind of disappears from the story, fades into the background. And for three chapters, we have two new characters that really emerge to the front of the story while Yahweh is working in the midst of it. And the first one is the Philistines, you know, those arch nemesis of Israel, Israel's sort of sworn enemy at this time, the people who have continued to cause Israel all of this havoc as they've tried to settle into the land that God has given them. And the second character that emerges is really an impersonal character. It's the Ark of the Covenants. If you've never seen a picture of the Ark before, here is what we think it may have looked like. The Ark is this wooden but gold-lined box. Uh, it was about four feet long, two feet wide, about a foot high. And on top of it, we have these winged creatures that are sort of bowing in worship in front of them. And inside of the box, we initially have the Ten Commandments, and then eventually Aaron's rod and some manna, the things that get 
place there, but the ark is taken and created and put in the holiest place in all of Israel, in the holiest room in the tabernacle, in their worship space, in their sanctuary. This is where this ark is kept. And we find the longest sort of description about the ark in terms of a name for it actually in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 4 describes the ark this way. It calls it the chest or the ark containing the covenant of the Lord, the Lord of the heavenly forces who sits enthroned on the winged heavenly creatures. So in Israel's mindset, this ark is not simply just a furnishing in the temple. It's not simply just like a storage cabinet. This is actually God's throne. That the Lord is the one who sits enthroned on the ark. So the ark is this constant reminder of God's presence with Israel and his reign over Israel. The ark is his throne. But in addition to that, the ark takes on this sort of other role, especially in some of the early narratives in Joshua. That what would happen is Israel is on the move before they settle in the land and the ark becomes sort of stationed for a while at Shiloh, is that the Levites would carry the ark as Israel is going to the land and they would carry the ark into battle. And as they would carry the ark in, it was said that the Lord would give them victory. So the Israelites began to believe not only is the ark a sign of God's presence with them and his reign over them, but it's also a sign that God is always for them. That he's always on their side. And if they carry the ark in, then they're guaranteed to have victory. Now for me, my first knowledge of the ark of the covenant actually came from Indiana Jones. For some of you, it may be that you have those terrifying images uh, from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark like, already going through your mind right now. If you've never seen the movie, here's the quick summary. The Nazis are looking for the Ark because they decide if Israel carried the Ark into battle and God gave them the victory, then well, what we need for world domination is the Ark of the Covenants. And if we carry the Ark in, surely we will conquer all of our enemies. So the Nazis are digging around looking for the Ark and some you know, people come into Indiana Jones and say, you've got to stop them, basically. And so you know, this one man against the Nazi regime, he's going to find the Ark and save the day. Uh, and so the Ark's discovered, but the Nazis end up with it. And then they make this horrible mistake and they decide they're going to open it. And if you've seen the movie, it's like lightning and fire and all this stuff bursts out. And it's so unbelievably disturbing. And long story short, sorry, to, but it's like 30 years. So long story short, everybody dies except for Indiana Jones and his girlfriend because they just close their eyes. <laughs> Because it's the 80s and that works, you know, that's, that's all you need. But I remember seeing this and just being terrified of the Ark of the Covenant. And then when you go to read stories like these, it's not all that different. It's not, I mean, it's different, but it's not as different as we want it to be. There's something about these passages that's still unsettling to us. As we look at these things, there'll be things that are kind of disturbing. We have to wrestle with what do we do with stories like this in the scriptures? Not Indiana Jones, 
but not as comfortable as we would like it to be. So what I want to do today is I want to look at four passages from these chapters and specifically look at what do these texts reveal us about the God who sits enthroned on this ark? What do they tell us about the God who's in charge? What do they tell us about the God whose kingdom is really the one that reigns over all? What do these ark stories tell us about Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this. It says, In those days the Philistines gathered for war against Israel. So Israel went out to engage the Philistines in war. And Israel camped at Ebenezer when the Philistines camped at Aphek. And the Philistines readied themselves to fight Israel. And when the battle was joined, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield, the devastating defeats. And when the troops returned to camp, the Israelite elders said, wait a minute, why, why did this happen? Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? And then one of them or a group of them had a brilliant idea. Oh, I know, we forgot the ark. That's what we did wrong. Let's bring the chest containing the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. And look at the language here. So it can go with us and save us from the enemy's power. Oh, we did this wrong. We should have brought the ark with us because if we had the ark, then we'd be all right. See, Israel finds themselves in this story in a deep, deep trouble. And they turn to the ark of the covenant rather than to the God of the covenant. They turn to the ark rather than the one who sits enthroned over it. And because they assume that Yahweh is always for them, that he's always on their side, they begin to treat the ark like, the ark like a tool rather than like a throne. And they attempt to bring it into warfare as a way to manipulate God into doing what they want him to do. They attempt to manipulate God. And it goes terribly wrong for them. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons who carry the ark into the battle, the wicked sons of Samuel, they die. 30,000 soldiers from Israel die. The Philistines capture the ark. The most holy symbol in all of Israel gets taken away by the enemy. All of this. And then when word gets back to Eli, the priest, Eli falls over on his chair, breaks his neck, and he dies. And then when his daughter-in-law hears what's happened, she's pregnant with child, she gives birth right there that day and has no other choice but to name her son Ichabod. God's glory is gone. It's gone. God's glory is gone. Israel's disobedience has resulted in God's exile. And the lesson that we take from this story is this, is that Yahweh will not be used. He will not be a means to our ends. And as much as we like to say like, oh, we never do anything like that. Certainly this is just something they dealt with. I think this happens for us more often than we like to admit. That we do the same thing. That we try in some subtle ways to manipulate God to accomplish our will. And then we use God to try to get what we want. I think one of the ways that we do this is in prayer. Is that we take prayer and we turn it into some sort of magic spell. 
Remember that scene from Harry Potter when they're first learning how to do spells and Hermione's getting everything right and everybody else is saying the wrong word or accenting the wrong syllable or doing the wrist quite the wrong way and it's not working for them? This is how we treat prayer. If we say the right words in the right way with the right sort of like effort or volume and the right mix of like tongues and English and the right mix of this and that, if we get the right people around us and we, we're wearing the right clothes and we say it the right number of times and we do it this way and we do it that way, then certainly God will have no choice but to answer our prayer. Because we'll have done all the things and forced his hands into doing what it is that we want him to do. But prayer is not a magic spell. Prayer is an invitation into a loving relationship with the, the king of the universe. It's a way in which we get to know him and know his will, what he wants, what he desires, and submit ourselves to that. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, my kingdom come and my will be done. Oh, wait, no. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what prayer does. It reorients us. Not that we don't bring those things to God that are heavy on our hearts, but we bring them to say to him, what do you want to do in the middle of this? We don't come to say, this is what I want you to do in this. But God, what do you want to do in the middle? We do the same thing actually with faith. You know, faith is that great invitation to trust God, to believe in him. And it's also this call to faithfulness. To trust him by living out the way, uh, living a life that lives in accordance with his ways. Say, we're going to be faithful to you. When, even when it doesn't make sense and it doesn't seem to be working, we're going to continue to just be faithful to you. We're going to trust in you and we're going to hope in you and you alone. And instead, we make faith a commodity. And like store it up, build it up. And once we have enough of it, we're like, all right, God, I'm, I'm ready to cash in this faith. I'm going to change this amount of faith for this thing that I want you to do. And if, you know, the prayer doesn't get answered, then clearly it's we haven't built up enough faith yet. So we got to go in, you know, and gather some from somewhere else and then come back. Okay, I guess maybe that healing cost, you know, eight liters of faith instead of seven. So now I've got more and this will force you to do this thing. Sometimes we even do it with God's grace. Or instead of seeing God's grace as this undeserved, un, uh, un, just unbelievable gift that we're supposed to respond to with gratitude, we treat it as an entitlement. And then begin to treat God like a cosmic butler or a really generous genie. Right? God, just give me what it is. This is what I need you to do. Bring it here to me. But most of us, of course, aren't that you know, overt about it. Generally, for a lot of us, it's a lot more subtle. Then when we think about our prayer life, our prayers are filled with our agenda, with our wants, our desires, our needs. And that's it. Or maybe we don't even pray until we find ourselves in a jam that we don't know how to get out of. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, prayer is the way out. I'll then pray, and that will force God's hand to take me out of this. And probably the clearest indication of whether or not this is an issue for us is what does our prayer life look like when everything's going really well? What does our prayer life look like at that point? Is it something that we're turning to the king of the universe, recognizing his grace and his mercy and his love and coming to him and saying, okay, entering, you've invited me into relationship with you. Continuing to get to know you 
to understand you, to know your heart, to know your thoughts, to know your ideas, so that my life might be conformed to yours, that my will might be conformed to your will rather than your will conformed to mine. This is what prayer is supposed to look like. Prayer and faith and grace are not a means to get God to do what we want, but they're ways that we get to know God and get to know what it is that he wants, and we learn how to participate in those things. Yahweh will not be used. We go on to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and it says this. It says, after the Philistines took God's chest, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, one of their five major cities. And the Philistines took God's chest, and they brought it into Dagon's temple and set it next to Dagon. So Dagon is sort of the national deity of the Philistines. So they take it and they place it in the right next to their god, like a home furnishing in Dagon's temple. You know, he needs some sort of extra storage chest there to throw some shoes in or something. So they just set it there, very casually, very nonchalantly. But then when the citizens of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen face down on the ground before the Lord's chest, just worshiping, you know, this stone idol having fallen over, or gold idol, whatever it was. So they took Dagon and they just set him back up. <laughs> that's, the, that's my favorite part. <laughs> it's like, oops, like, it'll be fine. Let's just stand him back up. So they stand him back at where he belonged. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon again, fallen face down on the ground before the Lord's chest. And this time, Dagon's head, along with both of his hands, were cut off and lying on the doorstep. It gets decapitated and dismembered, and he's laying there worshiping, and only Dagon's body was left intact. Yahweh in a foreign god's temple doing this to the foreign idol. See, in the ancient world, a military victory signaled that your God was greater than your enemy's God. It signaled, surely, Dagon is supreme over Yahweh. That Dagon has won, so Dagon is greater. So we can just take this ark and just kind of set it in here beside Dagon. And then the other thing that was part of that is they recognized, well, Dagon's got limits, so it's good to have a backup. It's not, it's not a problem to have more gods. The ancients believed that the gods were limited in their powers. They were limited to a particular cosmic sphere, like the sun or the moon or the rain. They needed, you know, gods, different god at night than they needed during the day. Or they believed that the gods were limited to certain geographical spheres. And so they were like, hey, Yahweh couldn't protect Israel in Canaan, but we all know what Yahweh did to Egypt and bringing Israel out of there. So let's keep him around. We'll just add him right on here alongside. So like the Philadelphia Eagles, if you have Carson Wentz, you keep Nick Foles. Like you might need a backup at some point. If you're the New England Patriots and you have the greatest quarterback of all time, you just find any sort of capable backup. Like Peyton Manning, anybody will do. Was that, was that too soon? There's a couple back there that are happy that Brady's in his 800th Super Bowl. But here's the deal. Yahweh refuses to be a backup or an add-on. He refuses. He will not share the throne. He will not sit by another ruler. He will not be one of many gods or kings or teachers or rulers or anything else. He is the one. And he demands absolute allegiance and exclusive loyalty. 
There is nowhere in the scriptures any place that we can find something like Jesus plus. No Jesus plus Buddha, Jesus plus Gandhi, Jesus plus the force, Jesus plus anything else. It's Jesus alone. That's it. There's no room for anything else. He will not share the throne. There can never be both God and something else. God and money, God and country, God and something else. As if those things are equal or equated or somehow mutually, you know, intertwined with one another. The scriptures say, love the Lord or God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, not part of anything. Amen. With everything. This doesn't mean that we don't love other things. It doesn't mean that we don't love our friends, we don't love our family, we don't love our nation, we don't love our job, we don't love those things. It means that the way we love everything else is shaped by our love for and our loyalty to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That he reshapes all of our loves. He redirects them and redefines them. He's the one who shows us actually what that means. Then you're thinking about what it means to love my wife and my daughters. It's shaped by my love for and loyalty to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're his. He has given me life and allowed us to be family together. This is all his gifts and his doing. So it's his love that shapes all of it. And when we begin to get anything off in that, things go terribly wrong. As they did for the Philistines. The story goes on after this whole incident with Dagon, the Philistines and Ashdod are like, uh, they come down with tumors. It probably is swollen lymph phones, like lymph nodes, signs of the plague, because there's some gold mice that figure in later on in the story. We won't get to that today. Uh, but they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. And so they ship the ark off to their neighbors in Gath. And, you know, people in Gath are like, we'll take it. We'll be fine. You're, you're obviously, you know, something wrong with you people in Ashdod, us people in Gath. We can handle this. And so the ark comes to Gath and guess what happens? They all get sick. Same thing happens. They're like, we got to get rid of this thing. So they send it off to Ekron. <laughs> and guess what? Same thing happens. It's disturbing as you kind of read through some of those stories. And so like, we've got to get rid of this thing. We can't just send it to another Philistine city. We've actually got to send it back to Israel. And so the priests and the diviners, they come up with a sort of elaborate test to see if this really is Yahweh that's doing this or if it just happens to be coincidence. And so they come up with this scheme, you know, to some cows and a cart and they put the chest on it. And like, if the chest goes back to Israel, then certainly this is Yahweh that did all this. But if the cows come back here, then clearly there's some other reason why all of these terrible things are happening in our midst. And so they go through this whole thing. They set the ark uh, on this cart with the cows and the cows just head straight for Bet Shemesh, for the border city in Israel. And here's some farmers just like casually out in their field, harvesting. And they look up, and here comes the ark. They're like, yes! And they immediately begin to celebrate. And here's the beautiful thing is the Philistines gave them everything they needed. They chopped the cart up for a fire, took the cows, sacrificed them, burnt it up, <laughs> and began to worship God right there. This celebration sort of breaks out. And they're like, God's back. We're all good. And then like two verses later, this is what happens. 
But God struck down some of the people from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the Lord's chest. You well, know, they did the same thing those Nazis did in a couple thousand years later. God struck 70 people and the community grieved because the Lord had struck them so severely. See, the, the ark comes back and immediately they begin to honor God's presence. The word honor in Hebrew language is uh, the same word that the word Ichabod is based off of. Ichabod means no glory, no honor. Now he comes back and the, the word actually has this idea of a weightiness, a significance, an importance. And the ark comes back and they give God the gravity that he deserves in the midst of this. They recognize the heaviness, the weightiness, the importance, the significance of God's presence with them. And they respond accordingly. But then all of a sudden there's a group of them within that begin to treat God's presence lightly. They begin to become more casual or cavalier. And they actually disobey the instructions about handling the ark. It's only the Levites that are supposed to carry it. They're not supposed to look inside. And what we learn from this passage is that Yahweh will not be taken lightly. He will not. He will not be taken lightly. And the challenge for the people of God throughout history has been, how do we both love and fear God? How do we approach him without being too casual about the weightiness of his presence in our midst? How do we both love and fear him? How do we hold on to both? See, God reveals himself to us as both our father and our king. He reveals himself in both ways. And so as we recognize God as his father, we can approach him with the familial, familiar love that we do inside of family units with parents. We approach them and know that they love us. At the same time, he reveals himself as king and calls us to bow in reverence as we come to our Father, to recognize and appropriately respond to the weight of his presence in the room. We oftentimes think these things are opposites of one another rather than complementary. One of my professors put it this way in talking about the book of Deuteronomy. He said, ancient Israel has here learned that love and fear are not in fact mutually exclusive, but complement each other. So that love prevents terror and fear prevents irreverent familiarity. The two go hand in hand. We're not called to be terrorized of God, but to honor, to respect, to revere, to be awestruck and wonder of the creator king. And at the same time, know that he's revealed himself as a father who loves us and cares for us and carries us and holding those two things together. And we tend to err though to one side or another. Throughout history, we've tended to err in one way, either personally because of our own history and upbringing or because of abuses from a previous denomination or previous time in history, we tend to err. I think in our day, we generally tend toward the latter, toward the irreverent familiarity. You know, case study number one is the buddy Jesus bobblehead, right? That Jesus has been reduced simply to a buddy. Or maybe think about the sort of discomfort that we feel whenever we talk about sin or judgment. Ah, let's talk about the other things about God, not that. 
We tend to want to hold on to one and not the other. The scriptures call us to hold on to both. And so for some of us today, the question is, what would it look like for us to take God more seriously? To recognize the weights of his presence in our lives. What would it look like if we honored God's presence with us? For some of us, and maybe the other, it's trying to hold on to the fact that yet maybe we've got that, but the sense that this God and King also loves us is the hard part to wrestle. He calls us to hold both of them together. And the text itself does. The text has passages like these where we see kind of some of these things happening where, okay, Yahweh will not be used. Yahweh will not be treated lightly. Yahweh will not share the throne with another person. But we also see something else happening in this text that's really easy to miss in the midst of all of those other things, and it's this. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 says, The Lord's chest was in the Philistine territory for seven months. Seven months it's there. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners. They say, what should we do with the Lord's chest? They ask, tell us how we should send it back home. See, the Philistines have taken the ark. They've won the battle. The enemy has triumphed and God is gone. Ichabod. Some of us know what that's like. We feel like we've lost so much. Like we lost things that we were fighting for lost things that we're holding on to or things that we wanted to see happen or hoped or prayed for that we know were within God's will. They just haven't seemed to have happened yet. We find ourselves in that place going, how is it that we ended up here? Lord, why did this happen? And our life feels like Ichabod. feels like the glory is gone in some way. But as we keep reading, we find that seven months later, God returns. And he restores the ark to Israel. See, the other thing that we cannot miss in this story is that the way that this, these narratives reveal to us is that Yahweh will return. And he will restore what the enemy has taken. But the reason that we don't treat Yahweh lightly, one of the reasons that we recognize that he cannot be used or manipulated in any way, that we do not share the throne with anybody else because he's the only God that can do this. He's the only God that will return and restore everything that the enemy has taken. The story of the ark is in many ways sort of a miniature form of the gospel. We think through this same lens and think about what happened to Jesus. That Jesus is there crucified. And he's taken down off the cross and buried in a tomb. And all hope seems lost. Ichabod. The glory's gone. The disciples are walking on that road to Emmaus and Jesus sneaks up behind them. They don't know what's happened yet. They're like, we had hoped that he was the one. Despair has set in. The enemy has won. God looks like he's been defeated. And then three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. The enemy did not win. God's glory was not lost. God will return, and he will restore what the enemy has taken. And this is the great hope that we clutch onto for 2,000 years. This is the great hope of the Christian faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And he will return, and when he returns, he will restore everything in your life that the enemy has taken. He will restore it.
He will restore. That's why we don't need any other gods. <laughs> him and him alone. 